balance isn't just a good idea. It's absolutely essential. It's based on what's most true about the body. It's based on how things actually work and that you will imbalance systems in the body through imbalanced inputs. And I don't care if they're healthy or not. You're going to imbalance, you're going to create long-term imbalances. Welcome to the Seam Lund podcast. I'm your host Seam Lund and our guest today is Joel Green. Joel is the author of The Immunity Code and a pioneer of many of the ideas in the nutrition space. He's the founder of Veep Nutrition Systems and has worked with companies like Quest Nutrition. This episode is brought to you by the Metabolic Autology Masterclass. It's the most comprehensive and in-depth program about applying the benefits of intermittent fasting and metabolic flexibility for both longevity and body composition. You get access to over 13 hours of video content about the science of autology as well as a four-week meal plan and workout routine with precise macros and food recommendations. Head over to seamlund.com forward slash masterclass in one word and use the code POD20 for a sweet 20% discount. Joel, welcome back to the show. Hey, Sim. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, it's, uh, we had our first talk maybe yeah, like a year ago before this uh, craziness started. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was a really good podcast. So maybe can you give a, like, a brief overview as well about your backstory and uh, like reintroduce yourself to people? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I um, have, I generally just consider myself a, a, like basically a consumer. That's kind of how I think of myself. And uh, I've been consuming um, solutions for, you know, health and fitness and biohacking for uh, a very long time, <laughs> going back to, uh, going back to really like the eighties. Um, and so all that led me to the, um, uh, a path where I was, um, I was uh, not making a living from, from fitness or anything like that, but I was um, running a company. And uh, this was for me, like my late thirties and running this company, I, I came into this period of my life where I, <laughs> I started, I started the company um, when it was like kind of a, a startup. And then we, we went, um, we grew pretty fast. We grew to like uh, uh, $25 million run rate, like just in you know a couple of years. And I was, uh, so my body fat was like about 5% when that started. And then it was like 30% <laughs> by the end of that. And uh, led me down this path where um, I, I, for me, realized that a lot of, uh, a lot of the advice that we as consumers get just didn't really translate very well into like, you know, having a job and a real life and family and kids and all that stuff. And it set me down this path of trying to figure out, well, what would work? And so from that, I had uh, created a nutrition software and then it was um, a, a commercial software though. So instead of offering it to consumers, it was offered to like hospitals and uh, you know, the YMCA and big companies and things like that. And so um, it was sort of an interesting period. This was for me, 2009 through like, you know, um, into like the, the late, late, late 2019, where um, using this software, we had uh, like several, several thousand people at any given time using it. And um, there was a, a kind of a, a way that I would implement protocols. I would find protocols in research. I would implement them. And then I was able to harvest data. I was able to see like what worked and what didn't work because I had thousands of people using things all at once. So I could kind of, you know, put in a new protocol and uh, if it worked, great. I could kind of see why it worked. Um, it's a lot of trial and error. I was able to harvest data pretty quickly from that. And um, along the way, what happened was um, I kind of knew some people kind of on an inside track that uh, led to doing some consulting with other companies. One of them was Quest. And um, I kind of had, <clears throat> based on the data that I'd been harvesting, a bunch of ideas about, um, about uh, body fat and immune-centric mechanisms and adipose. And people would ask me these questions and I would, I would get into like these very long explanations. And finally, I was like, okay, well, I just should write a book. So I wrote a book and then here we are. That's kind of yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, data can give you like a lot of uh, information for sure. Like, you know, that's what, that's how like Facebook is uh, based on or like how they built their own entire business. And if you get to know people's uh, data and especially like behavioral data, like most people don't know about uh, how many calories are they eating and they don't know how often they eat. They just, you know, uh, kind of uh, passing through life without really paying attention to those things. And if you have them, give them like some sort of this valuable information about uh, their health habits, then that can be a pretty uh, transformative for a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, you know, what's, I think also sort of what um, is evolving on that front that is very interesting is um, sort of sort of a different way to do research. 
so the classical model of research is you it's very expensive and very time consuming where you uh, you know you, you create an experimental group a control group and blah blah blah, blah you do all that stuff um and it's very plotting and very expensive and very slow and there there is um because we have these these new platforms that are ubiquitous everybody has them and they're able to harvest data um there's an emerging there's an emerging way of doing research that um, allows you to rapidly harvest um, very fine-tuned guesses about uh, different protocols. And so I, I kind of kind of see that into the future that uh, the way that experiments and science are done will, will have a, a very large conjoining effect with um, the data that is readily available every day from smart devices to do research um, and and marry that. It'll never replace empirical research, but it, it will become um, an adjunct um, that will allow us to rapidly see, well, this probably is not gonna work or this probably will work, so. Yeah, 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 it's because like the current uh, studies to good have a good study, then you need to like, control all the variables and to do a lot of, you know, it's very costly and takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, uh, which is, you know, definitely something that needs to be done uh, to get like actual uh, definite uh, evidence, scientific evidence, but at the same time, you know, you can't do like this um, double blind control studies all the time for every smaller problem. And, you know, that may just be, let's say, it's going to take forever for actually making like some actual progress in, in these fields. Yeah, and, and also like, um, I think also the, the applications of something like that commercially are also very interesting where you can have companies that kind of blur the line between commerce and science and, um, they, they don't need to do a study per se. They just need to know. They need to know like what is probably true and they need to know it really rapidly. And so using that kind of data harvesting, you can just, um, you can you can get a very good approximation for what's probably gonna be true. And it can be very, very accurate. You can apply statistical analysis to that kind of stuff. Anyways, so very interesting front kind yeah. of an aside, but yeah. What, yeah. what are some of the, let's say main uh, things that people can um, learn from by using your software? like? Um, like besides like the macros and stuff uh, what is some some of the many yeah like a key advice uh, that they can expect um well probably the um in my original software the the main thing in that was some of the ideas introduced in that were the idea of meal to meal sequencing so that that was a really big thing to to um understand that the way that you have one meal impacts another meal a good example would be like um Barley kernels. Barley kernels um, have a, a very interesting, you know, lipo or excuse me, very interesting effects on um, glucose control. And um, there's some some interesting data that um, has shown that uh, the effects are long lasting. So like you can you can have a meal that's rich in barley kernels and have it at night, and then um, what you're going to see 11, 12, 13, 14 hours later is um, uh, better glucose clearance. And and so the way that one meal affects another. Um, it's something that really hasn't been looked at a lot or talked about very much, but um, that that was like one area that was you know really heavy, really heavy into that right. particular system. And uh, then um, I have a newer. Go ahead. I was going to ask the barley kernels. Um, <laughs> like so, you're you're basically kind of uh, setting your setting your body up for uh, digesting the next meal by you know priming it in some way before that. And another example would be like you know, like if you eat let's say low carb beforehand. Uh, the first meal, then the second meal, having a higher carb, maybe may make it easier for the body to tolerate it in, in, a, in some way because of your like glycogen stores can be somewhat lower and uh, therefore you're, you're not like overspilling the glycogen if you have like, you know, several carb meals in a row, which is like, a, just like a basic example. Yeah, and a very good one. Yeah. So, and that's, that's, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, like we can kind of you can get into this and, and there's there's a, a number of different variables and fronts that meal-to-meal um, -meal sequencing can work on. So um, as you as you point out correctly, one of those is just simply glycogen storage. And then, but there's quite a few other ones, particularly with respect to um, not, not just insulin, but all of the helper hormones around insulin. So the incretin hormones, uh, GIP, GLP-1, um, CKK, CYY, all, all of the, or PYY, and sort of um, helper hormones uh, that in one way or another relate to insulin, adiponectin, all this stuff can be dramatically influenced by one meal and that dramatically affects the next. It's kind of easy to validate like just through junk food. Like if you wanna, <laughs> like if you, if you have like a, a really big junk food meal at uh, one meal, it's going to dramatically influence the next meal. You're probably gonna want more junk food. And so the same right. can be true in reverse. Yeah. So 
what are some ways to maybe hack it or uh, how what is a good example of this meal sequencing like proper meal sequencing let's say for optimal blood sugar regulation and maybe fat loss or something mm -hmm. yeah um well probably at the core of this there's there's like probably five basic ideas um the the most widely known is is glucose clearance or how well you're clearing glucose and so there's a number of ways to affect glucose clearance um one of those methods in particular is not by subtracting calories, it's actually by adding calories. And so by adding calories from um, insulin sensitizing foods, um, there is sort of a, um, both, there's both a direct, uh, direct effect on the next meal, but there's also sort of a cumulative effect long-term on the sensitization of insulin. So simple examples would be um, adding um, things like, uh, things like berries or uh, uh, starches like garbanzo beans or, or inulins from things like asparagus. Just you know, adding these things to meals can have a, um, a, a, a very small effect on the next meal, okay, um, in terms of glucose clearance, but it's, it's an improvement on a number of factors. And the real benefit though is seems to be uh, most likely over the long term, where we're actually sensitizing insulin function and helping the body just to get better at clearing glucose. So that, that's kind of right. the first category. Mm -hmm. um, the next category would be enzyme impairment. So, and it's it's pretty easy to show that um, certain foods help to impair um, enzymes you need for uh, transporting sugars. Uh, the most well-known case would be berries, where um, the anthocyanins and the pigments in berries can impair alpha amylase, alpha glucosidase, compare those enzymes. Um, but enzyme impairment sort of is, is its own category that we can look at. Um, the next would be gastric emptying or just how fast or how slow things are emptying from the gut. And that really has to do with the order with which foods are taken in. So there's some good research that shows um, when you're taking in foods, if the last thing you're taking in in a meal is the carbs, then things are going to empty slower um, from the gut. And then that's going to help glucose area under the curve. Mm, um, wow. And there's a lot of research in this area that's, that's kind of interesting. And, and a lot of it likes to parse things down, like, well, you know, really fat is the key or really this thing's the key. But really from what I've seen, the main thing just seems to be that the last thing that comes in in a meal are the carbs. If you eat the carbs last, then they're last in line to clear the gut, okay. uh, clear the stomach. It seems to help. So there's several, um, <laughs> so there's, there's several categories of things. Another would be sort of the amino acid makeup and the amino acid profile of things. So if you have glutamine in a meal, um, you're going to actually get a net reduction in calories absorbed. Um, and some, there's some decent research that suggests it's even as much as 37%. I don't know that I buy that, but um, there, there certainly seems to be like this thing that um, looking closely at the makeup of the amino acids can have an impact on one meal to the next. So these are all like things that, that get really interesting when you dive into mm. it. Yeah, that's really definitely very interesting. And uh... That's one of the best, uh, or the one of the you know, like more unique ideas that I've heard about you or from you uh, and your and your book uh, that these meal sequencing. So most people don't really pay attention to that, and uh, yeah, it does make sense that you know what you eat before that beforehand uh, does have a huge impact on the next meal. And uh, like, how how big is how big does the space have to be in be between those meals? Like, does it have to be like an hour or like five hours? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's a very very interesting question. Um, so. <clears throat> There's a, there's a couple of quick answers there. One is that um, if what we're looking at is sort of affecting uh, glucose clearance and insulin function, then there seems to be a window that's about 30 minutes to an hour prior. Um, so uh, a very small preload meal, 30 minutes to an hour prior uh, can impact things in a positive way. And in fact, there's been some research that shows like if you were to, once again, add calories, which is a counterintuitive thing. If you add calories to a meal, let's say uh, it's a baked potato and you want to add calories, you add some whey protein, then you're going to get, you know, uh, up to a 20% improvement in um, glucose area under the curve, glucose clearance. But yeah. if you take that same meal and you back it off 30 minutes, you get an additional increment. Um, mm. So, so the timing seems to play a part. Um, but the next thing about this that gets really interesting too, is it's not just the timing of the next meal. Um, there seems to be also that you can affect uh, meals the following day by, by the way that you eat. So a couple of really good examples. Um, one would be getting back to insulin sensitization. One would be sort of like uh, fatty foods, like an egg at breakfast on one day seems to number one, decrease total 24 hour food intake, but it also, um, the evidence seems to suggest that it improves um, the function of the incretin hormones. So GIP, GLP-1, and that follows into the next day so that your glucose clearance, uh, insulin function is actually better the next day by having an egg the previous day. And then where this takes you to is that you can start to stack these things. So you can have an egg sort of at breakfast and then barley at night. And both of those things impact insulin and insulin function in different ways, but they're complementary. 
Um, so that's, this takes us into this whole kind of you know universe of things that hasn't been talked about a lot, which is um, not just meal-to-meal -meal sequencing, but the entire family of insulin function. So insulin sort of by itself is this one thing, but then it doesn't work by itself. It's got all these other hormones that make it work. Um, and so how do you how do you time and uh, combine foods to affect those hormones so they affect insulin better? And um, in, in one sense, it's sort of very interesting because um, once again, it hasn't been talked about very much um, and there seems to be some decent research that backs this up. So um, yeah, you know, and I think best of all, though, is it something most people can just prove to themselves. You can kind of do it, you can kind of do yeah. it readily and see if it works. So. Yeah. So what would be like some uh, good, uh, like golden rules? So you mentioned that having the eggs for breakfast, uh, so and the barley at nighttime. Um, so yeah, like, what, are there anything like that you would add to like every meal uh, in terms of helping to maybe absorb it better or uh, digest it better or have like a lower blood sugar mm -hmm. response? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so once again, coming back to insulin, um, long-term, the, the effect of getting insulin to just function better will affect everything else. And so, um, you know, you, you can make a very, very strong case that there are very specific foods that just sensitize insulin to make it work better. And that even just by adding very, very small amounts of these things to any given meal, that you're getting an incremental effect. And when I say incremental, you know, I want to make, make it clear that there's, there's no panacea. It doesn't exist. But what, what does exist is, you know, maybe a two or 3% improvement. And then you can stack four or five things that have a two or 3% improvement. And now you have like a 10, 20% improvement. And then that carried forth meal to meal every day. That's a big deal. So, um, you know, just no specific order here, but, um, you know, if we're looking at, if we're looking at foods that are a little, little richer in carbohydrates, um, that are, you know, more prone to spiking insulin, then there are, you know, whole families of fibers that seem to affect insulin function in a very positive way. So beta glucans, inulins, um, things that contain uh, resistant starch, you know, and all of these things together. So specific foods, you know, going are certain types of grains. I mentioned barley works very well. Uh, rye seems to work very well. Um, getting into like um, uh, phenols, uh, dark phenols seem to help uh, quite a bit. So the, the color pigments in them seem to help uh, glucose function a lot. So, you know, things like pomegranate, things like blackberries, um, all these things affect uh, different phenols and they affect things in different ways uh, in a very positive way. Uh, whey protein seems to be something that works really well, um, seems to aid uh, glucose clearance quite a bit. And then you have like all kinds of tool sets like berberine and, you know, glutamine and all kinds of things like that. So any one of these things, and I just think of these things kind of like, um, it's kind of like fighting, you know, in fighting, you learn skills and you learn techniques. And so you learn when to use them. Like, yeah. yeah, so. <laughs> uh, kung Fu, <laughs> nutritional Kung Fu. <laughs> basically yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah what, what, what i like to do is that um whenever i or like with with, with a slightly higher carb meal then i do like to add uh like these uh resistant starch like either from beans or uh, the co cook and cooled uh, potatoes uh all those things uh, to kind of help with the uh the glucose uh, response and the insulin as well so you and it also like absorbs slightly fewer the calories from there so just an easy mm -hmm. example yeah, uh, very much so. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, again, there's decent research on that, particularly the, the heating and recooling, heating and recooling. And the numbers that I've seen um, are pretty impressive. Like, like you can literally double the amount of resistant starch in a food just by heating and recooling a couple times. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty, pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, but what about like, if you're eating, if you're not eating carbs, like, I don't know, you're eating only, you know, proteins and that's uh, on a low, low carb diet. Mm -hmm. Is there any like rules for that? Or like mm -hmm. guidelines? Uh, yeah. So that gets into kind of a whole different category. So we're not really talking so much about, um, we're not really talking so much about the glucose there, but, but we are indirectly. So some of the things to keep in mind is that, and this is sort of controversial, but um, it's, it's not that hard to show. Long-term sustained high protein animal feeding can increase insulin resistance by virtue of elevating serum glucagon. glucagon. So uh, that's the sort of one thing to keep in mind. The other thing is the long-term effects of uh, fermentation of proteins in the gut. You know, it's something that kind of need to counter. Um, and by, by themselves, none of these things are bad. Like, like you know, like I, I have a lot of animal protein in my diet. I have, you know, all that stuff. But, but really what, um, when, you, when you look at sort of mechanistically, like, well, okay, elevated serum glucogen long-term, that's, that's not a good thing. It's a great thing in the short-term because it helps you get lean. 
but in the long term, it's it's kind of a problem. Uh, there needs to be a balance between insulin and glucagon. Yeah. And if you're having too much too much animal protein long term, that's that's probably not a great thing just for that particular measure. So um, adding in things that sensitize insulin with that, which are the things I talked about, like like for example, you're having a steak, have a small amount of like let's say asparagus with that. Just it doesn't yeah. even have to be a ton, just a little bit amount. And what that will do is um, a number of things. But one, um, it helps you ferment uh, a little bit better in the gut. So you're not purely fermenting proteins you're actually fermenting um fibers and and it sort of seems to shift the balance away from fermenting um potentially toxic compounds um from bacterial metabolites from fermenting meat and so kind of balances things out um the other piece of that too would be that it also helps to keep insulin sensitive insulin sensitivity working so mm -hmm. just by adding a little bit of balance in the diet you get like a a, a really nice long-term benefit yeah yeah, like glucagon is basically the counterpart of insulin. And uh, if you're like fasting or if you're on a low carb diet, you're not eating carbs, then uh, glucagon goes up and insulin goes down. So eventually, yeah, and the main role of glucagon is also this uh, breakdown of liver glycogen. And uh, as a result of that, your blood sugar will rise. And, you know, because you're not eating carbs or you do become slightly insulin resistant. And, uh, you know, yeah. actually what people don't know is that like uh, diabetics tend to have like high glucagon levels because there are, you know, breaking down a lot of glycogen and you know they're not able they're not insulin sensitive in a sense and that can yeah. I mean, eventually high level high levels of glucagon can also lead to diabetes because of the same reason mm -hmm. uh, so yeah yep. it's a definite and if you eat like carbs you're basically you're raising insulin and, and you're lowering the glucagon so you're bringing your body back to balance mm -hmm. and you're able to yeah. clear the bloodstream from blood sugar whereas if you're not eating carbs or you're not able to produce insulin because of being insulin resistant then the glucagon stays elevated and you keep you know producing those uh you keep uh, breaking down the glycogen all the time yeah, well, well said. Well said. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something uh, that probably isn't generally well known, but I mean, you can get diabetes from a high fat diet. You can get diabetes from a high protein diet. You can get diabetes from a high carb diet. Um, so uh, the, the, we, we, we associate like blood sugar disorders with purely carbohydrate intake, but that's not true. Um, you can, you can give yourself insulin resistance from sustained high protein intake and the mechanism, it, the interesting thing about that is the very thing that causes all the beneficial aspects to happen up front is the same thing that causes all the negative aspects to happen down the line. And that's just simply you're over sort of stimulating one hormone, which would be glucagon in this case, in short term that, yeah. you know, it accounts for the fat loss. It accounts for all the things you think are great. Uh, but then the longer you do it, then, you know, really you're, you're elevating serum glucagon, you're increasing uh, gluconeogenesis in the liver and you're suppressing, you know, all these, you know, very specific enzymes you need. And ultimately what's happening is insulin, insulin sensitivity is sort of going downward and that's not a good thing under any circumstance. So to yeah. your point, balancing the diet sort of helps that out. Yeah. 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 Like I'm, I'm not a, like a big fan of doing chronic ketosis either. And I definitely want to do it like cyclically, like you said, it's good to do it uh, in a cyclical manner that you do get the benefits of this leaning out uh, with a higher levels of glucagon. But yeah, you probably don't want to be doing uh, chronically because yeah, chronic ketosis will make you slightly insulin resistant uh, at least in the short term. It's reversible, but it's not like the optimal place where you want to be uh, all the time. Uh, yeah. What what yeah, I like to what, what I like to add to like um, some of the higher fat meals is also like a little bit of uh, dairy or calcium, uh, because mm. calcium like helps to break down the fats and it also reduces the fat absorption. So you end up you know, getting a fewer calories from that uh, higher fat meal. So maybe like a little bit of cheese or cottage cheese or something uh, that is like less inflammatory, uh, that, that can be like a good, this hack or this addition to like any uh, higher fat meal. Yeah, so the addition of, um, I, I did a whole video series on this on my Instagram, which is uh, a lot of unknown things about dairy. One of them is that it actually increases uh, fats passing through the gut by the formation of calcium soaps in the gut. Um, so it's kind of a natural fat trapper. And then along with that, you have sort of all these uh, beneficial effects on aldosterone or uh, basically the renin angiotensin system and the suppression of ACE and all this stuff. So um, it's just a really good addition to help increase fat oxidation and help do all these beneficial things. Contrary to what most of us have been told, which is just avoid dairy because dairy bad, <laughs> yeah. blah, 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 blah. It's actually quite functional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, if, if, if this comes from like a good source and it's, uh, uh, if you are not allergic to it, then it can be a definitely very good uh, food. Uh, yeah. Just like, again, the moderation is fine. And uh, you probably don't want to be and it's also like one of the kind of only reliable sources of calcium uh, besides like fish fish bones or something and if you're you know not taking any calcium supplements and you're also not eating any dairy then you, your chances are you're not getting like the full optimal amount of uh, calcium either yeah uh, i actually saw some really interesting research on this a number of years ago um i, I had i had seen some fitness guru posts that the calcium from dairy wasn't absorbable and like i knew that wasn't true and I kind of 
just spur of the moment, dug up some old research on that. And so it turns out that the uh, glycomacropeptides or the, the sugars um, in dairy, what they do is that they extend the sort of runway of calcium in the gut. And so what they do is they actually help calcium absorb better in the gut and you get better absorption of calcium from dairy. So it's, it's one of, uh, and there's, um, there's some really good research a number of years ago by this dude named Zemmel, who um, you can kind of think of with a grain of salt. Uh, Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. Um, you, you, <laughs> yeah, you can kind of take it with a grain of salt. Like it's, uh, you know, it was some of. I think it was funded by the Dairy Council, some of it. But um, you know, okay, well, you, so what? You can kind of use it as a line in the sand, and then compare it to other research and see, you know, if it seems to hold water or not. But, but uh, quite a bit of that uh, seemed to suggest that uh, the role of dairy calcium um, behind weight management. That one of the factors why dairy seems to be so good on weight management is because of it, the absorbability of calcium in it. So, and that goes contrary to what, what most of us have heard about dairy because it's been so vilified. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, and you know, the calcium from other sources doesn't. You know, doesn't tend to be that uh, bioavailable. Like if you get it from, I don't know, spinach or some other leafy right. greens, then you're not getting just very low amounts uh, in total. But the absorption is also slightly lower. Yeah. Um, so also on that note, um, what's interesting is that uh, dairy contains bioactive peptides, and by bioactive, essentially the way to think of them is that they're encrypted, encrypted peptides. Uh, so they they don't de-encrypt or unencrypt until they get in the gut. And once they become active in the body, they, they serve a number of different functions that are highly beneficial. And so these, these peptides affect a whole host of things like gene activation, fat metabolism, a whole number of things. And uh, dairies really probably out of you know, any food that I can think of probably has more bioactive peptides than anything, anything else I can think of. And they complement the action of dairy and its role with calcium, so. Mm, yeah. Do you so so? You're you're not like a fan of high protein diets in the long term, and uh, like does it apply to like what what's your maybe like uh, I don't know um, overall macro macro do you track your macros or something? What your diet look like in general for you? Yeah, uh, it's really varied. So there's no there's no um, there's no single. I, I don't really subscribe to macros that much unless I'm really dieting hard and and I really want to. Um, I really want to get, you know, like the, like the last 20 days of getting lean, then I'll look at macros. Yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, so to your thing, um, no, I, I'm, I'm fine with just about anything for a season. So high protein diet for a season, you know, particularly in winter, probably, you know, pr pretty good idea. Um, long term, long term, we just need to have a balance and things. And it, it gets to like a lot of what has uh, propelled the, the, um, the things that people do nowadays are narrative or stories about our ancestors. And we always have to kind of keep in mind that, that uh, stories are stories. Like they're not, they're, not, uh, they're not observed facts. It's like nobody was there with, a, with, uh, with an iPhone recording everything that happens. So we don't actually 100% know. Yeah. Um, we have to, we're, we're taking guesses. And, and since we're taking guesses, one of the uh, things that's fair to point out is that um, uh, seasons affect availability and uh, availability drives variety, meaning uh, not by choice, but, but you're forced to seek out other things when certain things aren't available. And um, I've, I've looked at this thing quite a bit. Um, I've looked at you know ancestral cultures and I've looked at like uh, the Indians where I live and what they ate. And um, really it just seems to be the case that they had these really very diets. And it was, again, it was driven by the fact that they didn't have a refrigerator sitting by. They had to go mm -hmm. get what was available. And so they would eat, you know, sometimes they'd eat berries, sometimes they'd eat coyotes, sometimes they'd eat whales, sometimes they'd eat deer, sometimes they'd eat nuts, sometimes they'd eat, you know, whatever was available. Sometimes roots um and so variety in the diet um uh, from a narrative point of view seems to have a lot of benefits long term because what, what variety in the diet does is the the potential every food has benefits every food has negatives and um short term we always see the benefits a little more and then long term we see the negatives a little more and so what variety in the diet does is, is it works as a counterweight and it seems to balance out the negatives of certain foods a good example would be like uh, high protein diets with a little bit of fiber there you, you can make a case that there's a lot of benefits to high protein diets um the longer you do them uh, you can make a case there's probably some negatives but if you add some fiber you counter the negatives and so um i have a very i have a really varied diet um and it can be uh, seasonal it can vary a lot um, but it can also vary a lot uh, day to day. Um, so classically what I do in, in my book, I talked about kind of what I believe is kind of like a, uh, a way to eat that answers all of the, all of the issues that we have to look at. And um, if, we, if we take a comprehensive approach to why do people fall off the wagon? 
why do people get get fat over time? Why do people like not stay on diets? And we, and we integrate all those things. What you come up with is about six different things. You come up with the fact that um, eating whatever, whenever seems to be uh, a survival mechanism. And there's, there's kind of no getting around it. There just isn't, particularly post-starvation or, or diets. <laughs> so post-diets, eating whatever right. seems, to, uh, seems to have an ancestral sort of thing in it, bringing up narrative again. But it seems to have like an ancestral thing where um, if you were went through a starvation period, um, eating anything in sight uh, will give you a better chance of surviving. And so there seems to be like a mechanism there. And it seems to be mimicked nowadays when people do diets and they come off those diets, they want to eat whatever. So um, so we have to counter eating whatever. And the way to counter it is not by not eating whatever. It's to offset eating whatever. So, so that's one thing. Um, along those lines, uh, there seems to be a decline in the gut biome as we age. So we have to counter that. Um, and just a number of factors that have to be looked at. Um, the other thing, one of the most important is the fact that um, we have, um, if, if you make a living in the modern ecosystem not related to being fit, then you have probabilistic constraints that present very significant barriers long-term to maintaining anything, case in point, when Arnold got a real job. So when Arnold got a real job and became governor and not movie star, what happened is um, all of the stuff, the, 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 the system that Arnold pioneered to the masses didn't work. It didn't work for him. And the way he solved the problem was he had to get out of having that real job and get back to being a movie star. And then he solved the problem. Right. So what you see are these time probabilistic constraints in the real world over time. So we have to have something that works on zero time. So all those things together are kind of what went into um, what I put in my book, which is a two-day eating pattern. And long story short, basically what we're doing is one day we're emphasizing um, a little bit more on the fruits and fibers and uh, starches that feed the gut. And what these things uh, potentially seem to do is amplify all the beneficial effects of fasting. And then the second day is more sort of fasting and fats where we also get the benefits of fasting, but we don't have to fast as long and we get the benefits of fats. And so you kind of have this balance day to day. Yeah. That's kind of foundationally what I do. Mm. Yeah, so it's a very, it, you do everything cyclically based upon the situation and uh, based upon what you're doing and uh, what you did be beforehand. So it always varies. It's, yeah. it's never, it's yeah, never it's second. Kung fu for food, that's what it yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I, yeah. I, I like to think of it in, a, in the same way as well. Like it's always changing depending on how I exercise and uh, what I ate before that and uh, that sort of thing. And yeah, like the season may have a little bit of effect on it because I feel like, like the summertime, we're going to have more of the berries around and, uh, you know, vegetables in our garden and during the winter we have less of it. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's yeah. perfect yeah, example. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think this, this conversation right here is um, very much beyond where the ecosystem's at today. Because uh, again, let's use our Kung Fu analogy. Um, uh, let's just let's just assume that um, really what's going on is is that you know you think I don't mean you but I mean people at large you you think that you think that you're up against a diet but really what you're up against is a series of battles every week you have roughly 30 40 battles with food most people lose all <laughs> they lose those fights okay and the reason they're losing them is that they're approaching a fight with this fixed style thinking that oh well this is going to be a boxing match this one fights a mm. boxing match so that's yeah. you know i'm just going to box this one and then and then the opponent shows up with a knife and you're yeah. you're out of luck <laughs> or or the opponent like shows up and is a jujitsu master and you go to the ground and so you're taking this stylistic approach to a battle when really the reason the plan never survives the battle is because that very first battle changes the plan and you have to be able to adapt dynamically to that yeah. and so moving away from this analogy of like um the the all the the uh, dietology of like oh well i'm i'm just i'm i'm high protein low carb that's what i do or i'm you know i'm high fat low carb or, or i'm vegan whatever moving beyond that uh, maybe a more advanced way to think of it is that these are all tools and we can use all of them at any given time, depending on what the situation presents us. And that dynamic nature of eating is the thing that throws everybody off track because you go to the office yeah. or you're, you're with friends and someone introduces like a cookie and you're like, oh, well, I'm on a diet, but okay, I'm going to eat. <laughs> yeah. you know? And that just derails people. So, you know, rather than thinking of these things as plans, um, a much more advanced way to think of it is skill acquisition. These are mm. skills I can acquire and skills solve real problems. Skills will solve real problems that plans can't fix. When you have a skill, then you acquire a skill, you gain the ability to overcome uh, that particular problem every time it presents itself. And, and that's, that's really the approach I took in the book was that the acquisition of skills is what's gonna solve your problem, not the plan. 
Yeah. So it's a different way of thinking about things. Yeah. So the book also talks a lot about the microbiome and the gut, because that's also probably one of the central parts that determines how you respond to any kind of uh, food that you eat. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I mean, massive part. <laughs> yeah, very massive part. Um, the thing about the microbiome, I guess, that you know, I would probably offer just if anybody asked me, is to understand how malleable it is, how um, adaptable and, and changeable it is, and, and very rapidly, and, and to really understand uh, the impact that given foods have on the microbiome. So a good example, sugar. Uh, sugar absolutely has a very negative effect on the gut microbiome. It advantages certain species, particularly the Clostridia over other species. And then the metabolites of those bacteria are, are not good. You know, you get, you, you get lipopolysaccharide, you get all these things that aren't good, you get inflammation, and that's not a good thing. Um, and conversely, there are um, very specific dietary factors that have a very beneficial effect on beneficial bacteria in the gut. And these changes happen rapidly and, and they affect a global spectrum of things, uh, notably cravings. Like um, you can rapidly, uh, I, I think I've, I get this email from, you know, one school of thought, which is, um, which is fighting cravings and, and you have to fight cravings. And no, you have to, you, you can steer cravings. It's a much better idea. You can steer cravings by steering bacteria. And it can be done pretty quick. You can make yourself crave, um, you can go from craving sugar to craving salads, and it's not that hard to do. Um, you can go from, and just, just by changing the bacteria in the gut by giving them the right substrate. And there's good research on it, and it affects everything rapidly. So uh, as, a skill, as far as skills go, uh, uh, like an indispensable skill that will help the average person make a dramatic difference over time is just simply understanding how to rapidly fine tune the bacteria in the gut. Yeah. It's a very, very simple thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like because a lot of the time when people, let's say, they do uh, fall off the wagon and uh, they have like a cheat day or something and uh, they're not properly prepared for that, then the next following days uh, they're going to crave these uh, additional junk foods because, it, because they, they re, re, uh, restructure the yeah. microbiome to start craving yeah. those foods again. Whereas if they're on a diet for like weeks and weeks, then they actually like the healthy foods because the microbiome has adjusted and it's got just a kind of this... You know, goes to show how big of an effect the uh, gut has on the brain and uh, or just decision making in general. Yeah, it's 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 very 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 profound. Um, one of the key signature things to that whole thing, like the way that you know that um, you've done a good job, is through nausea. And what you'll consistently see is when you have um, done a good job of shifting the biome in the gut, and then you have sugar, you're going to get nauseated. And the reason you're getting nauseated is because you are suddenly advantaging the dysbiotic bacteria while well, they're spinning up they're growing rapidly and what they're doing is they're displacing commensal bacteria and as they displace those commensal bacteria that their guts still open they still let the polysaccharide into your gut which is the exact same thing that happens when a fever breaks your body heats up it yeah. kills bacteria the guts break open you feel nauseated you want to go throw up and it's the same thing that happens so um that's that's how you can know and it's also like a really good deterrent to eating like crappy food like you yeah. can just retune the gut and to your point that's what happens. So you go out, you have a you have a day off the wagon, you eat whatever. Well, getting back to the idea of skills, an essential skill is understanding how to recompensate and retune the gut after you have that cheat day. And by doing that, you skip a lot of the bacteria-induced sort of like, oh, I need more, I need more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. What are, what are some examples of that? You know, how, how do you let's say first or what, let's start off with like a, just the healthy bacteria in general like are there any specific uh, bacteria and what kind of foods uh, help to grow those mm. yeah well the ones i talk about most in my book are bifidobacteria and acromantia um for different reasons um acromantia is not the only bacteria that is in the gut lining there's uh, fetal bacteria prosnitsi there's uh thetomicron but there's the, so but there's a very few that um are commensal in nature and um i focus on bifidobacteria in my in my book because um it, it seems to feed a lot of other things through cross-feeding reactions. And it seems to be really associated with um, gene activation uh, in lean people and all sorts of really great things. So those are kind of the two that I really focused on because they're, they're sort of easy to target. And bifidobacteria um, is a big family um, and has a lot, a lot of different strains, but generally speaking, you know, it loves color pigments. So it loves phenols, uh, phenols feed it really well. So uh, these are your, your, your dark, anything dark, yeah. um, could be, could be like sweet potatoes, could be, you know, uh, blackberries, could be raspberries, could be, you know, anything dark, um, mm -hmm. loves inulin, um, loves like certain types of more dense fibers, loves like uh, beta glucan, loves, loves these things. Yeah. So, um, uh, cellulose, hemicellulose, all, all that stuff seems to feed it pretty well. And so that, that makes this argument for, you know, things in the diet, things like cabbage, things like asparagus, things, you know, things that feed it that direction. 
Um, Acromancia uh, is kind of the upfront thing in, in my book that I talked about where um, we go right after the gut lining initially. And Acromancia, it's very, very difficult to feed directly, um, but there do seem to be probably a couple ways that, you know, better than others that we can probably feed it and probably feed it with pomegranate. We can probably feed it with um, uh, apple, the anthocyanins in, in apple skins, alpha-3 uh, galactoside, um, and probably indirectly through uh, human milk oligosaccharides. We can, we can feed it that way. And so those, those are kind of the big two that I talked about. Yeah, yeah, see, yeah, see, you're like you uh, have these apple skins uh, <laughs> quite frequently. So th that's the main reason to kind of feed these acromentia. Uh, it's well, um, it, it's sort of in the mix. Um, like it's, I, I think in the book, you know, I, I put the apple skins in first because it's doable. Like, like mm. everybody can go get an apple and do it. But like, if I were to do the perfect order, um, I would probably do like the red phenols first, add in the HMOs, and then the apple skins. It's just for the sake of writing a book. You, you know, if you put like the red phenols up front, it's like, oh my gosh, I got to go to Amazon and order that or I throw right HMOs, what the hell are those? Uh, where <laughs> do I get them? What are they? You know, so the skins are sort of easier to do. Um, now the caveat to that too, is if you have like some, you know, existing serious gut issues, like if you have like Crohn's or colitis or things like that, um, you, you're, you're probably not gonna be able to do apple skins up front just because the fiber itself, um, you can't transport fiber when you have too much uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha in the gut lining. You got to clear all that first before you can actually make use of fibers. So you get into sort of a whole different set of protocols yeah. um and my recommendation for that is you know if you have something severe go see a good practitioner and that's that's how you do that mm, yeah so would it apply to some similar like leaky gut if you have like these you know intestinal permeabilities mm -hmm. so you have to first like start to heal the gut lining and uh, then it's uh, you know your uh, ability to tolerate any kind of other food which also could just increase and you may not have actually like uh, actual intolerances you're just having like this uh, leaky gut yeah, um, so, you know, leaky gut and, you know, gut inflammatory related things are, are like a family of things. And the degree of severity can can have a lot of variance to it. So um, you can you can you can be really inflamed in the gut, just like you, you can't handle any foods to like you just have kind of like, you know, a lot of discomfort and it, and it just depends. So and and the types of the types of like you know well what should you do well when you get into like you know medical conditions you should go see a practitioner that's what you should do um but you know with respect to just like leaky gut like just kind of ideas that probably make more sense than not generally speaking lipopolysaccharide is kind of like the thing that we want to look at and so these cell wall bacterial fragments um that can sort of like happen in the gut from feeding the gut the wrong types of foods are really kind of like one of the main drivers of helping the gut to permeate. And so really clearing lipopolysaccharide is something that we want to look at. One of the things that helps with that um, is time-restricted feeding. So it does seem to help. Um, in fact, cessation of food in general um, seems to help a lot of gut-related inflammatory issues. And that's why fasting seems to help. Um, so like good protocols, like if you have like, if you have, you know, sort of medium-ish issues, um, good protocols are kind of the combination of uh, cessation of food for a while, maybe like uh, maybe just sticking to like liquid diets for a few days, along with things that um, are anti-inflammatory in nature and help feed the gut. So amino acids are really good. Yeah. And um, like you can start to combine these kinds of things and it gives the gut kind of a chance to kind of heal up and clear TNF off a little bit. Mm. Yeah. So glutamine would also be uh, one of those things that help, help with that. Yeah. 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 So what, what, what do you think about fasting in general then? <laughs> I mean, well, it's yeah, probably the biggest, like, I, I don't know what the biggest nutritional question of our day is. Is it, is it, you know, <laughs> is it, is it high protein animal diets or is it fasting or is it them together? Um, I, I can only tell you what I've seen and what I've experienced in my life. So, um, you know, all this started, like, I think the big interest in fasting probably started to gain traction about 2017. Um, most of that derived from earlier research that showed that caloric restriction was um, really like a, a surefire way to um, to age better. And so just not eating helps the body to age better. And so as a big concept, it's probably good to have periods where we don't eat. And that seems to be uh, fit the ancestral narrative that, you know, that's probably been there all throughout history. We just had periods where we didn't eat. The body has some good adaptions to that. So it's probably good, probably a good thing to have. Um, the other side of that though, is that continuing that narrative, that um, continual like restriction of food or continual starvation probably wasn't the norm historically. There are probably periods of feasting along with that. So like yeah. you didn't have food, then you had food, then you figured out. Um, and so, and so I think where like an extreme has has taken place is that um, I, I see a lot of people that have latched on to just fasting all the time. And 
I did that kind of like around 2011. And the thing that I personally noticed from it was I just never recovered. I was always sore. Mm. Uh, I, I just, yeah, I was really always sore all the time. And, and mm. from there, that kind of led me into like, mm, you, you need to feast periodically. Your body needs sure, to yeah. have lots of food periodically. The other thing about um, fasting, um, there's numerous, numerous benefits to it. Um, but, but also it's like anything in health. Uh, we, we tend to, I think, I think if I could probably offer one bit of advice if anybody asked me about like, you know, any protocol, it would be that you got to understand that um, when you think a protocol is only good, probably not the case, um, that you have to map things out over time. And when you map things out over time, you're always going to get almost always this inverted sine wave, like almost yeah. always, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Yeah. So up here's the benefits, up here's the negatives. And T with respect to time is just a question of how long. And sometimes it's not that long. Sometimes it's years. And right. um, that, you know, having done this stuff 40 plus years, that's happened to me. I've had lots and lots and lots of different protocols that I've done, fasting included, where I had lots of benefits for years, years, like four or five years. And then, and then I had like several years of negatives, like it took me years and years and years to correct those things. So um, there is a percentage of the population that will hear that and just ignore it. <laughs> Power to go ahead. Right. Great. <laughs> you know, yeah. Good. And then there's a percentage of the population that is like, okay, well, that makes sense. So how do I, how do I avoid that? So my answer to that would be that, um, that you don't want to do anything like indefinitely, just, you know, if you mind the idea of yeah. seasonality, there, there are seasons when, you know, fasting is great, there are seasons when you want to feast and, and both those things are complementary. Um, some of the things that, you know, we're, we're seeing with respect to fasting, there's, there's so many good things that it does, but there's also things that, you know, are not so good. One of those is that you can actually um, increase insulin resistance through it, um, which is sort of contrary to what we think. We think, well, fasting improves insulin resistance, but um, go there's good research showing that if you just fast for three days and then you go eat carbs, you're going to have um, yeah. insulin resistance. You're not going to do very well yeah. with a bunch of carbs. Um, there's that. Then there's there's evidence of sleep disruption that I talked about in my book and, you know, kind of other things. So um, what what I have taken things to that I presented in my book was the idea of, of amplifying fasting, but shortening the window. And this came out of um, some work I did uh, back in 2015, 2016 with Quest Nutrition, uh, focusing on fasting memetics and things like that, where, you know, like when you break down why does fasting work? Well, um, there's a very few mechanisms that you can come to right away. One is methionine restriction. Uh, the other is just simply the um, reduction in total food intake, which, um, down regulates growth pathways. So you're not seeing as much mTOR activation, um, much less mitogenic pathway activation. And so those two things seem to help a lot. And then the next is just a reduction in oxidation. So food is inherently oxidative. When you take in food, it doesn't matter whether it's fats or carbs, you have oxidative metabolism, yeah. you have glucose oxidation, it oxidizes. So the less we oxidize, the better we age. Um, well, uh, we don't need to cease food to get those benefits. Like you can still get right. most of those benefits without it. And Taking that idea even a step farther, when you look at like, well, um, why does fasting work? It always converges on, you know, just about everything that's good seems to converge on a, a very few given pathways, FOXO1, uh, AMPK, you know, uh, sirtuins, all these pathways. And there's a way to activate those pathways through yeah. bacteria in the gut. So the bacteria in the gut talk to the mitochondria, they have crosstalk, and um, you could draw a checkbox, list of checkboxes with exercising bacteria, and you'll find certain bacteria check the same boxes. It's kind of weird. Like you get yeah. lactic acid production. <laughs> um, that's odd. Well, lactic acid production, activation of AMK, activation of sirtuins. So there's a very good case to, to think that um, certain commensal bacteria mimic exercise and that they activate the same pathways and stimulate the same pathways um, turned on by fasting and ancestrally, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. Like if you go back in time and you think about it, like <clears throat> I've made this case before, um, if there was nothing to eat, like as the last resort, I'd probably go dig up some roots and it's not my first pick. Like my first <laughs> pick would be like, you know, like a really giant steak and we eat right. that first, but if I have nothing else, I'll go dig up roots. Well, it turns out that probably that roots confer um, a very significant survival advantage in a starved state because they feed commensal bacteria in a starved state. Those commensal bacteria in a starved state have the ability to mimic the effects of exercise, amplifying mitochondrial biogenesis, giving us a better chance to survive. Mm. And so kind of yeah. kind of makes sense from a narrative point of view. And then mechanistically, when we dive into the pathways, that kind of seems to make sense too. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That yeah, like if, if you are if you if you have been like basically starving for days and you haven't eaten, then you like physically you should be like weaker uh, because you're uh, you know under 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 eating and starving. But physiologically, what happens is that your body you know turns on these similar pathways uh, as exercise that promote like this mitochondrial function and 
you know alertness and cognition also increases so it is like incentive for your body to okay you you've been starving and you need to survive so therefore we're going to give you these uh, basically these pathways and these uh, functions that help you to exercise better and you know run after this game to ensure you that you uh, catch it because the alternative would be that you're you're getting weaker continuously and therefore you're right. going to die anyway right. so that's why the right. body yeah. uh, evolution kind of works right. in this very funny way and it's kind of yeah there are many ways you can mimic the same uh, pathways uh, that mm -hmm. you get from fasting as, as well as exercise uh, by doing like these yeah. different ac actions yeah and it's a really fascinating topic like like to yeah. dive into this thing it's it gets to like um it gets to like the starved state and commensal bacteria and survival advantage you know and and it makes this case for like fibers in a starved state and like whoa wait a second we missed something here yeah we did actually yeah. <laughs> it's yeah see it really seems to be the case fibers in a starved state potentiate uh, uh certain pathways that promote survival case in point would be amp k so the amp k pathway does this really interesting thing with uh glucose um what it does is it it respools glucose back up into cytosol but it doesn't expend it and so it has this sort of glucose sparing effect. And that makes a heck of a lot of sense because like if you're just starving and you're just getting weaker and weaker and weaker, your probability of catching anything is going down, 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 down. Yeah. Well, you have to counter that or you're gonna die. Well, one of the ways you counter that is once you activate the AMK pathway, you're restoring your sprint capability. You're mm. restoring your, yeah. you know, your immediately energetic um, fuel source so that you have enough power left for a last ditch effort and that yeah. makes the difference between life and death and so it's like really yeah. fascinating when you dig into this stuff yeah and it yeah. also kind of goes to show how uh, amazing or how powerful the body actually is and even even in this yes, like, in, right. even in the starvation state is you know mm -hmm. it is a uh, very potent and you can definitely definitely do like maximum exercise if you are in this very deprived yeah. state and that's not like part of the the incident resistance that happens is also uh, the survival that the, the uh, muscles uh, become incident resistant so that they could uh, basically you know, still use ketones and the function properly so uh that's the ketones that you get from its own body fat uh so it is like a in the short term it's actually beneficial for the survival but yeah if you start to eat carbs right after breaking the fast then it is problematic in terms of you're going to have like this hyperglycemia for longer whereas if you kind of ease into it uh, slowly you break the fast you know more more with the lower carb uh, foods uh, then uh, you can avoid that and re-establish re the insulin sensitivity after afterwards yeah, you know, I'll tell you, uh, let me ask you, let me ask you this, because uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you my experience with this, and I want to know yours. Um, my experience back in 2012 with uh, fasted training was initially in the short term, I was just getting blasted on it, like, like super amazing pumps, like really great. And then what I noticed is, as I sort of tr started thinking, well, this is the answer, you know, I was training fast all the time, uh, that started to go away. And started to see like um, negatives or like longer I did it, like very difficult getting pumped. So then went back to like, okay, well, you got to have carbs in the diet. Um, so I definitely noticed a time sensitive effect. I noticed like, um, like if it was kind of intermittent or, you know, just kind of there periodically that it was amazing. Um, but, but if I did it all the time, it didn't work mm -hmm. so well. I don't know if you had a similar experience. I will, will have like a, I, sometimes i do have it depends on the exercise as well I've, like i've never i'm mm. never gonna be my strongest in terms of like powerlifting or uh, you know bench press or something if i'm fasted uh, because of like mm. limited energy and limited calories uh, so i'm always stronger if i have like some food in my in my system and that's why i also don't uh, train fasted the majority of the time at least if i'm doing weights if i'm doing like something mm -hmm. like i don't know hit cardio or regular cardio or if i'm doing like just regular calisthenics to just to get the blood flowing then i can do it uh, fasted and I do have like energy and such, uh, but yeah, like depends on my goal. If I'm trying to, because my, my goals at the gym are usually like related to like getting stronger and building muscle. So it, it's counterproductive to do it faster because you're never going to be that strong and you're never going to even, not, and you're not going to also have like the nutrient partitioning effect that you uh, would have if you had something like in your system before that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I found me personally, I found that there's, there's a, there's a nice benefit to injecting it intermittently. Um, yeah. as a yeah, way sometimes. of training all the time, you know, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sometimes, but it's very good so, intermittently. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, uh, if you're in a hurry or if you're uh, trying to really maybe hone in on some fat loss uh, or turn on the EMP capacity much further, then uh, yeah, it can be good because, yeah, like training fasted mm -hmm. with probably turn on the AMPK and the autophagy and the other ones, the longevity pathway is also faster if we turn on, uh, whereas if you were to do it like fit. Yeah, it's, it's great for AMK. I found like fasting with uh, sprints and deadlifts is great. That's something I've done for a number of years. Yeah. Um, but the alternative of that is like 
you just absolutely have to have carbs if you want to like really really make headway yeah if you want to really really sure. really see a great or fast improvements and fast results then yeah the carbs are going to be probably better uh oh, yeah 100 as well as you know getting enough protein that's also about more important one for like muscle growth specifically have you had um so um uh, have you tried like um cyclodextrin in your workouts at all just curious uh not that one per se but uh use like uh dextrose uh, regular dextrose as well as uh, the deribose i've used those ones and uh yeah they tend to be pretty good like you get like some carbs especially if you're being like uh, if i'm doing like a lower carb period and i have those uh, carbs during my workout then uh I, I, I don't I notice the difference more because because there's a, like a contrast a larger contrast in mm -hmm. terms of my carb intake whereas if I'm eating let's say if I ate the carbs the night before then I would notice less of it uh, because of my glycogen stores are already topped off from the previous night's dinner that uh, where, where I had mm -hmm. carbs so I think it matters on the contrast if I'm being low carb keto and I have the carbs maybe do intro workout then I would notice like a bigger boost from that mm, yeah I've noticed uh, from from particularly the cyclodextrin, um, just right pre-workout, that uh, just significantly fuller all the time, like mm -hmm. in the muscles, just just post-workout, like because well, uh, like I, I I either get really pumped or really flat depending on like um, depending on like like uh, glycogen availability in the muscles, and I and I deplete it pretty quickly. So most of the time I'm like really flat, but um, I've noticed with the cyclodextrin in workouts that um, tend to be pretty full, mm -hmm. pretty full most of the time. Do you use like any? like creatine or uh like situated or something in any, any other workout workout ups yeah, yeah yeah for sure so the thing you know i'm older so 56 <laughs> so the number one thing when you're older is your circulation uh you can't build muscle without good circulation you just can't um, you can't even get pumped so um you really there's kind of a push pull between um things that will drive um better circulation and then doing it too much so but like I use um, just kind of like a lot of the standard stuff, citrulline, um, beta alanine, um, uh, you know, different types of special sugars, um, a little bit of creatine. Um, lately, I've been experimenting with a couple of other things um, that seem to, to be working pretty well. And it, it just really has to do with um, opening up, you know, opening and dilating the blood vessels. And what I, what I found is that particularly with age muscle, if you can get the blood vessels to dilate, you can get very similar sort of like performance gains to when you were younger. Um, and, it, and it's, it's all circulation. Uh, the other side of that though, has to do with macrophage polarity. And uh, so most people, as they get older, they don't have enough nitric oxide. Um, you get in kind of like the, the fitness set where they're consuming, you know, energy drinks all the time and they have too much nitric oxide. And so right. the, and what they have, what ends up having is you're always sore because you have too much M1 macrophage polarity. And so if you're consuming energy drinks and you're always sore, get rid of those and then just limit the, um, limit all that stuff to kind of pre-workout. That's what I've found. Mm. Would it apply to caffeine as well, regular coffee? No, not so much. I, I haven't found that to be true with coffee. Um, I don't. I don't really drink coffee anymore, though, just for a number of different reasons. Um, not that I think it's that bad, but I just I can't handle it. it makes me nuts. So, <laughs> right. Um, about about all the um, blood flow restriction training, have you tried those? Yes. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I love it. I just, um, you know, after a while, it becomes like you know this checklist i'm like oh yeah wait i forgot to add the bands and oh shoot i forgot <laughs> i can just i can only focus on two or three things at once so you know just <laughs> there's there's so much now that i just right. yeah I, I love blood flow restriction training it works i mean it works amazingly well um i'd probably do it more if i could remember to just bring the damn bands I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, I think also though as you get older i think it's probably essential like that mix it in for sure yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I use it myself as well uh, for like recovery, and it's really awesome for the pump. And uh, just you, you can just use the lighter loads, uh, lighter weights, uh, and kind of mm -hmm. avoid. You, you know, why we're doing heavy, heavy lifting all the time either. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. With heavy, sure. heavy weights. Yeah. So, so you mentioned you're 56. So, like, uh, what is your maybe mm -hmm. strategies? You know, how's your like? What's your current, let's say, aging, anti-aging, uh, you know, training strategy and diet strategy in general? Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much the stuff that's in my book. So um, the most important thing is the way that I eat, uh, just because uh, your your primary driver apart from sleep would be insulin output. So insulin output is going to drive all the body's mitogenic pathways, uh, the MAPK pathway. And uh, that's that's what's going to drive uh, a good chunk of the aging process. It's going to drive you through the hay flick limit, all that stuff. So really the key is not... Um, 
where, where we've come to in this era is, well, just get rid of insulin production. That's what you do. But no, it's not that. It's right. it's to increase the efficiency of insulin while having regular doses of insulin. That's, that's really the thing. So mm. um, the way that uh, the two-day core pattern I talk about in my book works is that you're doing both. So one day you're training insulin efficiency and the next day you're actually driving insulin output. But so you have three days in a week where you're not necessarily producing that much insulin, but you are sensitizing insulin. And that's the trick, sensitizing insulin and uh, insulin output at the same time, but not on the same day. So that works really well. Um, and then along with that, you can stack other things on top of that. So, um, you know, kind of an easy one is the, is driving commensal bacteria. That's going to help, help you age better. Um, another is focusing on redox and oxidation, uh, which a lot of that you can do through food, but you can also just through selectively timing things, you can, you can decrease oxidation. So um, in the book, I made this case that, um, you know, like antioxidants can be good, but it can be bad. And there's really best times for them. One of the best times for antioxidants is after a big meal. That's like, that's like a no brainer, like after a really big meal, Mm -hmm. uh, that's when you want to have antioxidants. And also, um, it makes a good case for why balance in the diet is essential because, um, you know, when you get a varied array of antioxidants with a big meal, then, um, you just, you don't rust as fast. That's, that's a big deal. How fast you rust. Yeah. So there's that. And then finally, there's just, you know, stimulation of all the longevity pathways. And so, um, you know, that stuff I talk about, which I call the amplified fast and that's, um, stimulating bacteria prior to fasting and then you have to fast much shorter and then you can use small molecules to simulate all that stuff. So uh, top of the list, you know, berberine, uh, NAD repletion through a number of mechanisms, not just NR or NMN. Um, mm -hmm. And then a bunch of other things that we can look at kind of converging a bunch of pathways all at once. Um, one of the ones that probably never doesn't get enough play is genistein. And genistein has uh, a number of really beneficial effects um, on sort of the longevity pathways when it's used selectively. Um, so that's a really good one I like to use. And then, you know, just an array of things, but I mix them in. I don't, I don't use the same things all the time. Like I'll have one month where I emphasize right. more, um, more pexophagy, um, maybe one month, the next month, maybe I'll emphasize more, um, just straight, you know, longevity pathways, cert one, MK, all that stuff. And then another month where, you know, maybe I'm emphasizing, you know, organs, liver, things like that. So I just mix mm -hmm. a lot of stuff in. Yeah, yeah. Do you use any of the, you know, metformin or rapamycin? Or have you used no i've ever yeah no 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 I, I mean i kind of believe that um that uh you can have a really good hundred years like a really good hundred years like i think that's possible um i think i'm living it right now i think i'm headed that direction um time will tell i mean it could change mm -hmm. tomorrow i don't know right. you know you only take a day by when you get to my age you take a day by day you're like <laughs> uh, so far i don't know <laughs> but um <laughs> so i think that um it, with the idea of a really good hundred years uh, there's the idea of when to use these things. And my, my belief is that uh, they're really great to save them for the finish. Uh, that includes steroids, that includes all that stuff. So um, these things right. are not, not bad or good, but uh, when to use them is a big deal. And I think um, there's key junctures in the aging process, the early 60s being one of them where the administration of some of these things can have profound lasting impacts and you can just age dramatically better. And so I put metformin and rapamycin kind of into those categories. Um, I just use berberine for now because it's so effective. Yeah. You know, it's great, great sensitizing insulin long-term. Just does a number of things. It's great for cholesterol, you know, so um, until until metformin, berberine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you don't want to you don't want to basically use your options as fast as possible or use up your, yeah. your options you want to use them when you actually need them uh, and you know mm, yeah. pe people start using uh, these uh, things already in their 20s or 30s and uh, may, they may just exhaust yeah. their pathways uh -huh. or exhaust uh, oh. the the use of them totally i yeah I, i've seen it i've absolutely seen it i've seen guys who looked mind-boggling mind-boggling in their 30s and then by the time they're 50 their bodies are used up it's like they're right. done literally done and like i'm just getting started right now i didn't, I didn't use those things yeah. so and it's not, it's not that i'm against those things i think but the analogy is the fast and the furious it's like you save the nitrous right for the end of the race that's where you save it for. And <laughs> yeah. so i think that's yeah. a, a much smarter way to go and I've, I've seen people like um in their late 60s 70s use some of these things and they get like this 20 year old body it's incredible <laughs> and the reason is they never used those things before that's why mm. yeah that's awesome well um yeah, all the information you talk about can be found in your book, and it's a really awesome one. I've read it, and uh, yeah, it goes into detail about all the sequencing and the meal timing and the bacteria and things. Yeah, it's a very unique and very fascinating read. So, uh, where can people get it, and where can they learn more about you? Yeah, uh, so veepnutrition.com, uh, veepnutrition.com. You can get both the book, and you know, uh, we've got some other great stuff there you can look at. Uh, uh, you get the book there, but you can also get the book on Amazon. Uh, it's the immunity code. And uh, I think it's yeah, here, yeah, immunity code. <laughs> and you can get that uh, Amazon or at our website. Yeah. And, and my Instagram is real Joel Green. 
and um, come on down. <laughs> yeah, awesome. We're going to put yeah. all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this uh, one piece of advice or habit that you wish you adopted sooner? Um, <clears throat> it sounds like a little thing. It sounds like it's just big deal, like a minor addition to the conversation. It's actually life and death. It's, it's really life and death. And it's that balance isn't just a good idea. It's absolutely essential. It's based on what's most true about the body. It's based on how things actually work and that you will imbalance systems in the body through imbalanced inputs. And I don't care if they're healthy or not. You're gonna imbalance, you're gonna create long-term imbalances. Uh, analogy is salt. Like uh, salt is good. Like mm-hmm. a little bit of salt on the meal really makes the meal. Right. Too much salt ruins the meal, mm. just ruins it. So let's suppose that somebody came out with a um, uh, salt is the answer diet. And you should only eat super salty foods and had all this great research showing that, yeah, salt, um, basically it's a natural uh, myostatin inhibitor, does all these things. You add muscle, uh, everything you know about salt's wrong. And then a bunch of people said, yeah, everything you know about salt's wrong. And they started eating salty foods. They see benefits. It's fantastic. You see people muscling up and it's great, blah, blah, blah. Well, in 20 years from now, a bunch of them have heart attacks and die. Okay. Because (laughs) they got away from what was really true. The the real truth is like, yes, it's a little thing, but it's all the thing. It's like salt is good. A little bit of salt really nails it too much will kill you and that's really the truth applied to everything else and it's it's not just a little thing it's everything it's absolutely everything and it's it's that um how your body works the truth is it's based on systems being balanced and you can imbalance those systems based on imbalanced inputs long term so that's the most important thing right yeah so yeah and i agree and a little little bit of imbalance can be good but not for the long term like you can you can get away with and in the short term it can actually be beneficial but yeah, like uh, eventually you, you would want to bring it back into balance <laughs> to yeah. maintain optimal, yeah, yeah. optimal yeah. function. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It, was, it was great talking with you. And uh, yeah, can't wait to do another one in the future, maybe. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Sim. Great to come back on the show and uh, super appreciate it. And good to, good to talk with you. Yeah, you too.